We pick it up uh, this morning. We're in Colossians chapter 3. We pick it up in verse 14 this morning. So read along with me if you would. And that's where we left off last week. So, of course, that gives us our balance text. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are also called and be thankful. To in one body and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Perhaps you've seen those shows. Um, sometimes, they're most of the time, they're on in the afternoon, so I won't make claim to actually having a lot of personal experience because it would be kind of all over the place. But anyways, where, the, where they bring in this gal and she is just encased in frump. You know, they've really done a really good job of just making her look kind of desperate. Her hair is completely disheveled. She's wearing clothes that are completely ill-fitting and she kind of walks with a limp and a hunchback. And she just kind of, they bring her in and, you know, and along with a handful of other gals that are sort of beside them just the same way. And with that, then they sort of, and, and they, they parade them. And I don't know about how much they could pay you to actually do that to yourself. But nonetheless, and they're like, take a look at these wonderful frumpy gals. You know, here they are. And then out step, you know, Serge and, and you know, and, and Roberto and these other guys that sort of come with like a scissors in one hand and, and you know, and a dumbbell in the other. And they're like, we're going to make you beautiful. You know, and all of a sudden, they take these gals and up they send them off into the abyss. And you really don't get to see much. Sometimes it happens by the end of the show. Sometimes they get even more time than that. Let's just say they got six months. And in those six months, you know, they're working them out and they're losing weight and they're kind of all this. And then they get them the new the nice fitting clothes and they dye their hair a color that looks more appropriate for their face. And, you know, and, and actually, and all of a sudden, then, you know, they bring them out and they parade them. And everyone starts to catcall and all that as they bring them out. Oh, look at my creation. Look at what I've done, you know. And, and the, the reason I say that is there's that moment where... Somewhere in between the two, there's obviously a lot of work. And, and if they don't want the viewer to lose interest in it, so occasionally they'll show them, and it's sacrifice. You know, they're there and they're sweating. They're like, I don't think I can lift one more time. You know, and, no, you can do it. You can do it. You're going to be beautiful. You know, and, and you watch them and you're thinking, oh, I hope it's all worth it. You know, and then you bring them out at the end. And there's that moment of glory where you appear with sort of your your fashion designer, and, oh, look at what I've done. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it tells us we are his workmanship, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. The word workmanship in the Greek is the word poema. We get the word poem from it. Literally, the idea of it is it's we're his masterpiece. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact that, first of all, it starts with a surrender to this individual, to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who died for your guilt on the cross, paid for all of your filth, and then rose again to offer you a brand new life. And if we accept that gift of Jesus Christ, that message we call the gospel, and if you accept that gift of Jesus Christ, you have now surrendered yourself to the greatest artist of all eternity. Here's the individual who spoke the universe into existence, the crab nebulae and these beautiful galaxies that we're still discovering full of all kinds of colors. That some of them, we don't even know how to put them on the wheel yet. And then you've got to go dig into the depths of the, of, of the sea. And we're just starting to discover these really bizarre creatures. You know, they kind of have the light that drips up. Beep, beep, beep. You know, those ones that look, the jellyfish that look like they have a marquee surrounding them. You know, we thought we were exciting in the, in the 40s when we invented lights that went blah, 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 like this. And God's like, I've been doing that since I created things. They're just, you have to discover them down in the deep. And you see these kind of fish that kind of just float and, you know, and they've just got all these colors that light up. And you, you kind of think that it's sort of a neon sign for something. And this is the greatest, greatest artist of all eternity. And this artist has done everything with this, with a let there be, let there be, let there be. And it was. And then he took a look at you and he didn't go, be good. Let there be something new out of you. When you said yes, 
God took you and slapped you onto his workbench and he started to shape you. Now, if God could create the entire eternity, all of the universe with a word and it's as beautiful as it is, imagine what happens with you when he takes that much time to create this masterpiece. You're not just a happenstance accident from which God says, well, I'll see you at the other side of it. God is actually taking delight. He's got full image of what he wants to make you. But the difference is, and the Bible says, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know this. When we see him, we shall be like him. There is going to be a day when we are going to appear with him. And when we do, it'll be the Lord that'll say, do you like what I've done? Really? With my masterpiece. And you are going to outshine the galaxies? You are going to outawe the deep sea divers. You are going to outwonder the people who are. Imagine the first time someone discovered the Grand Canyon or looked up at K9 and said, Who wants to climb that? I mean, think of the things that God has done with a snap, so to speak, and yet the time he's taking with you. Now, understand the difference between God's masterpiece and all of these other things, these other kind of cheap examples through you know tv is that god actually gives us the benefit of being able to be demonstrated of how he is shaping us into that in pieces and bits now on earth even though it has not yet been revealed we shall be in other words he starts to make these radical changes now in front of other people so that people start to look and go you know you just don't look like who you used to you don't act like who you used to you don't motivate like you used to and then you start to tell someone who didn't know you back in the day who you used to be. And people go, I just don't see it. I love that. When I can introduce you to a pastor's wife, and I wouldn't necessarily say, this is a gal. She had several abortions, and she was this, and she was that. That's not a polite way to introduce anyone. But if you could lay all of that out, and then a person looks at him and goes, I, I just can't see it. I don't see any of that. Because of how the Lord is already in the midst of changing. And one of the reasons why he does that now, although he could have just left us rotten and nasty, and said, don't worry, the day you die, I'll snap you into something nicer. But if he does it in bits and pieces now, as sort of an appetizer for the main course. Then other people go, wow, you really are changing. How did that happen? And God desperately wants us to tell people the truth. It's Jesus, that's what it is. And people go, wow, do you think he would do that for me too? No, why do these guys on TV offer their services for free to this person? It's great advertising. Because if they can do that, then you'll go there and go, wow, look at how they took frumpy Miss whatever and turned her into beauty Miss this. Wow, I'm kind of feeling frumpy. Maybe he could do that then for five easy payments of. And you realize they're advertising because they want more clients. Well, might I just say, if you'll pardon me for using something cheap and laborious on this, Jesus wants more clients too. He wants more clay on his workbench to shape beautiful things because that's what he does. And all of Colossians 3 is really basically that. Look at the verse, couple verses of chapter 3. Since you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Put your mind or set your mind on the things above because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Now listen to that last statement again. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Don't miss that. That's Jesus going, ta-da! Look at her in all her glory. Look at him in all that glory that he was instilling in us, that he instilled us. There is going to be a day when he shows up and says, look at this, my bride in all her glory. And the crazy part about that is, that's what is promised in Colossians chapter 3. Now, the beauty is that if we were in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, this would mean even more to us. And let me tell you why. Because every man that got engaged or betrothed, as the term would be called, left to go build a house on his father's estate for his girl. But the, the girl, oh, do you tell me it's a man's world. She would go then into a season which we call the season of beautification. The man who closed the deal, his name was the Shosh Benim, the friend of the bridegroom. John speaks of himself. John the Baptist says, the friend of the bridegroom in John 3 and 4, 4 and 6. The friend of the bridegroom, Shosh Benim. Well, the friend of the bridegroom who closes the deal between the groom and the father of the, of the bride, 
when he closes that deal, he is responsible, the Shashbanim, the friend of the bridegroom, the helper, is responsible then for that season of beautification. Now, how long does it last? Until the man is done with his house. And he works on that house, and he works on that house. Now, he hasn't forgotten about it. As a matter of fact, the first thing he does is he puts a snake in the front of that yard and says, the future home of. And then he's working on it. And he's like, oh, man, I'm going to make this. Oh, I know she likes, she'll like sun in this room, and I'm going to put it facing the east. And, oh, she's gonna, and then the whole house is with the design of that I'm going to be able to live in this house with my girl. But while that happens, the girl, oh, it's tough for her. She goes into what's called a season of beautification. And it's basically like six to 12 months in the spa. I mean, they are just bathing her in oils and perfumes. They're dolling up her hair and doing her nails. Now, I don't know how long you could do that before that gets old. Maybe for some of you, are like, I can't imagine that ever getting old. Well, that's the idea of it. And the idea of it is, is that they know that there is a day, though she doesn't know what day it is, we know it's only the day that he's done. When he's done with the house, if that guy's really stoked on his girl, he's not going to wait. It's like, wow, I'm glad I finished on a Wednesday. Sunday sounds like a good day to show up. Look at it. If I'm going to get my girl, the moment I'm done, I don't care if I'm sweaty, I'm going to get my girl. And the whole idea is you don't know. When you show up with, your, with the guy that blows the trumpet, that calls the entire community to, to arms, you know, they all are, are, are to attention. And then you have the herald, the guy who can talk loud enough to get attention with people. So the trumpets blow. And now the, you know, the marriage of Mr. Shemai and little Holka, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and he shows up on a litter. And what a litter is, is the limo of the day. The guy's looking good. He's right. You know, it's the thing that goes on the shoulders of men. You know, kind of, it's sort of like, you know, that sort of box and the guy sits in it and, it's, and then guys kind of carry it. That was the limo of the day 2,000 years ago. And the guy shows up at the house, but all of the elders rise up first. And as they rise up first, they bring their lanterns or their, their oil lamps and they light the way. So that, and the whole idea of it is that they are openly acknowledging that this is a legitimate marriage. And as they do, the man shows up at the daughter's house, at the girl's house. And he takes her and he lifts her up into his litter so that the entire community can see. Look at my beautiful girl. And he wants them to know this is, and, and she's there and she's all beautified and looking good. And he, and he parades her and off they go. And the whole idea of that, now listen, God uses that whole beautiful metaphor even in regards to the way that he comes in his second coming. This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen, for the Lord will descend with a shout, with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And therefore we will ever be with him. We'll forever be with him. Therefore encourage each other with these words. The Lord's going to show up with a trumpet call and a loud command, just like a groom does. It's time for the marriage of all eternity. Maybe not sounding like a wrestling announcer, but just the same. <laughs> and there comes the Lord, and it's the dead in Christ who rise first. Those who have died serving Christ before us, and they're sort of lighting the way like the elders would. And then the Lord shows up at the door and lifts us up, and everyone goes, "Look at how beautiful my girl is." And we'll be in. The, we'll meet the Lord not on the ground. It says we will meet the Lord in the air. Now consider this. This is a day where the bride, if she really loves her man, cannot wait for it. But if you get engaged and there's no date on the other side of it, sooner or later the engagement kind of loses its luster. You know, because people look at, you know, when the girls, when they first get married, or get engaged, they're like, oh, how's it going? And they're just, yeah, just oh, how's it going? You know, and you're just like, and they're like, what's wrong with your hand? What's wrong with your hand? What's, is it, did you hurt your hand? And then you realize, oh, wait a minute, there's a ring on did you get engaged? Oh, how could you guess? You know? And they get all upset. But then ultimately, so they go, oh, that's so exciting. When are you getting married? And they go, uh, someday. Like, oh, someday. Oh, okay. Well, keep the ring. You know? And, and you realize it, it kind of loses after a while its excitement. And that becomes the problem even unless you realize that day is really a done deal day. I mean, if you are totally confident in, in the faithfulness of the man who engaged himself to you, then at least you can still be excited if you're not sure of the day. Well, I know he's coming. Now, in those days, there wasn't a set date. I mean, being an elder would be a tough thing, man. You could be in your 70s and you hear that trumpet, oh, no, he's getting married now. You know, you have to get up and light the way. Now, consider this. 
that's what we have in chapter 3 is this season of beautification. This is what the Lord is doing in between that friend of the bridegroom ultimately. That's the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of him. He's doing this beautiful thing in between the moment you said yes to the groom and the moment that he comes to get you. And so this is what it says. Well, since you've been raised with Christ, well, then mortify. Do you remember that? Mortify. Mortify the members of your body that, that are the old man, not the new person now that you're engaged and, and set free and made new in Christ, but that old person, the fornication and uncleanness and passions and evil desires and covetousness that he calls idolatry. Let's let those things die. Amputate those things off you because they don't belong in you. And you can almost see as if the Holy Spirit were your trainer now going, come on, we got some pounds to lose here. We got a stone to drop from you before the wedding day. And you can see him going, and let me tell you what that, you got some ugly weight. And this is what it looks like. Fornication. It looks like uncleanness. It looks like passion and evil desires and covetousness. Let's let that stuff get cut off of you because it doesn't belong on a bride. And to be honest, when you look at it and you go, this is ugly. Good. Cut it off. Well, then all of a sudden you start getting all that. You start trimming and you start firming up. And then you look and go, wow, I'm looking good. And then you try to put on those old clothes. And you look at those old clothes and you go, ooh, um, these clothes are falling off of me now. They don't look so good on me anymore. Yeah, they kind of look like tents on you because these things were built for the old body. And now that these old remnants of flesh are being carved off, well, then get rid of the old wardrobe that was suitable for the old flesh because you're not the old flesh anymore. So he says, put off then these other things, anger, wrath, malice, filthy language from your mouth, and don't lie to one another. It's the old man. Put that stuff off. That's your old wardrobe. You don't need that wardrobe anymore. And there's nothing goofier than a person who's trying to wear clothes that used to fit them, that don't fit them anymore. And you can watch it. It doesn't look pretty. You know it. Somebody all of a sudden, you know, has clothes that fit a 20-year-old or so often these days have clothes that fit a 13-year-old body, but they're in a 50-year-old body. And that's just fitting 20 pounds of potatoes in a five-pound sack, and it just isn't pretty. And they're like, how you like me now? And you're like, I'm going to go and stare at something, a wall and cleanse my eyes. You know? And I don't mean that in a mean way. You just know that it's sort of like sooner or later, you're like, this just doesn't work. And, you know, and what's funny is I wonder how many times the Lord looks at us that way. Here's the groom, and he's kind of gets you know these insights as he looks into his bride being changed, and here we are being shaped up, and and all of a sudden you're going, wow, I didn't realize I could I could be this, you know, I didn't realize spiritually I could look this good. Man, fornication's dropping off of me, uncleanness is dropping off of me, being ruled by my emotions, being completely controlled by wanting stuff, and therefore I'm constantly discontent because I realize I don't even focus on the blessings of what I have. I'm too busy trying to get what I don't. That's covetousness. Do you realize that's a competition with me? And all of a sudden, that stuff's falling off of me. I'm going, wow, this is, I'm really starting to drop stuff here. And then God says, yeah, now look at all that excess splash. Now that all that weight's gone, you can, you know, we, last week, you know, we looked at it. We didn't show the picture, praise the Lord, of a guy that lost 400 pounds. And even though he lost all that weight, his flesh still, man, his flesh was not going to shrink back into it. You're going to need to carve it off. And that's what he's saying on this thing. Carve off that excess flesh because it's not going to shrink back to the new body. So as you carve it off, then the Lord goes, well, now here's the good news. I'm not going to leave you naked. I've got a whole new wardrobe for you. And that's what we looked at as we kind of get into this text. Because he says, now, in regards to this new wardrobe, and by the way, he goes in between it. You need to recognize the new you is wanted, is loved, is deeply loved, and is set apart. And if you recognize that's the new you, then your new clothing is going to fit you great. Because you won't be motivated by the things that people who don't recognize that they're deeply loved, set apart, and wanted. A person who's doesn't, who doesn't feel wanted, a person who doesn't feel loved, who can't really understand that this is who they are in Christ, will chase after the things of the world because the world knows how to push that button on you and say, ooh, if you got this, you'd be wanted. If you got this, you'd be loved. If you got this, you would be. And you realize that if we don't really grasp the fact that that's who we are in Christ we'll follow that because it's advertised everywhere in our face and then it's like wow you know if you were a little cuter if you were a little smarter if you were a little richer if you drove this car if you had this house if you and then you'd be wanted then the world's gonna look and go ooh it's like but the world's fickle even if they did it isn't gonna last long but the Lord knows every rotten thing about us and he looks at us and goes I can't get my eyes off of you 
do you realize how utterly magnificent this is? And he goes, no, once you recognize that, let me show you your new wardrobe. And that's what we went with. And again, what a lengthy introduction, but it all gets us to where we are. Here's your new duds. Put on, and notice he said, put off, now put on. Put on tender mercies. And he tells us kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And if anyone has an offense or a charge against another, even as Christ forgave you, you've got to forgive them too. He goes, this is what your new clothes look like. Your new clothes look like someone that cares about others. And the reason you can care about others is because you know you're cared for by the Lord. Somebody that actually wants to bless others because you know you're wanted by God. Someone that actually can love others and, listen, esteem others. Because it isn't because you've got great self-esteem, because you have good God-esteem, because you know that God esteems you. I mean, if God knows you and sees you as this precious masterpiece in the making, if you were this masterpiece in the making, why in the world would you be trying to doll yourself up when God's doing the work and we've seen his work, it's good? And then God says, now, with all of that, here's the finishing touch for your ensemble. This is what puts the whole thing together. Now, again, remember, love isn't just give me a hug. I like you a lot. Love, agape, simply means you before me. That's the whole idea of real love. In other words, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. And if the body of Christ was identified by selflessness, the world would fall on its ear and go, who in the world are you? And you go, out of the world. That's what we are. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of a place where we don't have to put us first because God already put me first. And he's already the one taking care of that, so I can put you first in my life now. Now, with that, notice now, there's a strange new thing that moves from verse 14 where he says, now, I'm going to put love as the end-all closing to this thing. Now, strangely enough, now that you're dressed, you're looking good, you're fit and trim, you've got a new wardrobe, he says, now, strangely enough, now the word is let. Did you notice that? Now, let is an interesting word, and we're going to see it, by the way, in both, this, both verses 15 and 16. Notice, let the peace of God, and then let the word of Christ. Now, let means there's something with a drive, with a will, with a direction, with a goal, and you are not making it happen. You're not forcing it to happen. You're not commanding it to happen. You're just granting permission. And God says, now that you're mine, now that you're in my hands, you're my masterpiece to make, I've got some things I'd like to insert into your clay to make you more beautiful. I'm going to add jewels into your clay. I'm going to add things that are going to, people are going to look and go, wow, that's beautiful. And there are things that weren't initially part of your clay initially. And all I'm asking for is your permission. That's a strange thought. That if I actually allow. Now, there's another side to it. I could allow the world to guide me. I could allow the world to define my terms. I could allow the world to give me my priorities. And by the way, the moment I allow the world to define everything, I'm going to look just as gross as everybody else again. It's amazing how quickly I can gain that weight back the moment I jump back into the world. How about you? And yet in this, he goes, now look, here's the two things I'd like to add in, and I'm asking for your allowance, your letting. The first thing, the peace of God. Wait a minute. If this is not something that's initially part of my natural recipe, that would mean that I am living a life prior to Christ that has no peace of God in it. And God says, now I want to mix that into your recipe. Now, I want you to consider the fact, and here's fundamental, is defining a term. Because the, uh, we can all look and nod, and if we have different definitions, we could mean the opposite and still think we agree with each other. The word peace, rene, rene in the Greek, does not mean great cosmic mellowness. Oh, I feel empty now of all discord. The problem is that lasts as long as there's silence and there isn't anything that's going to stand in your way. You're, but then all of a sudden, reality comes back, and reality doesn't knock softly when you're trying to escape it, does it? Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm so, oh, yeah. Go away! It's amazing how quickly that kind of peace leaves you. And that's why the, what the world sells is escape. The problem is you can't really escape. All you can do is ignore. Alcohol is an ignoring. It isn't an escape. I mean, you're dying of cancer, you're facing, a, you're facing HIV, you're going to get evicted from your place, you're looking at all of this stuff, 
and you want to go get hammered, it isn't like, it, I mean, I grew up in the bars. I never for a moment ever saw a guy go, you know what, my life was terrible, and I was poor, and my family hated me. I started drinking, and everything got better. All of a sudden, all my bills were paid, my wife loves me, and I'm great at my job. The bottom line is everything, what happens is you, for a moment, you're just trying to numb yourself enough not to feel that pain. And that's what happens in the world. That's all the world can sell you. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be something that's clearly a drug. Let me give you one of the biggest ones today. Entertainment. I mean, one of the terms we use is the term amusement. We'll use it as park. We'll use it in regards to what we watch. Do you know the word muse means to think? Cause and negative. So what is amusement? You just don't think. I mean, genuine amusement is you turned your brain off. Now, we can all agree that if what we were trying to do was trying to escape our things, even for a moment, amusement would make sense. If I shut my brain off, maybe I won't think about the problem. But what if God actually said, how about if I just help solve those problems? How about if you laid them at my feet and I actually took care of the problem? You see, that's something the world can't offer. The world isn't going to solve your problems for you. As a matter of fact, the world's going to be part of your problem, if not a massive part of your problem. The word irene that we have for peace comes from the word irras, and irras means to join. It is a relationship word. It literally comes from the idea of two things that were at enmity with each other, but no longer at enmity. We were angry at each other, we hated each other because you were a Hatfield and I was a McCoy. You know, you were the Romeo, and I was the, well, that's weird. But you get the idea. We were, you know, we were the two families, and we just hated each other just because we hated each other. And then something happened that changed that, and now we've become very, very good friends. We are now at peace with each other, and that's the idea of this word. This, now, understand, everything in the Bible is about filling you, not emptying you. Emptying you of the things of the past so that there is room to fill you. Everything in this world is about trying to empty you of things because the world feels it's rotten. And if you can actually try to just take a little off the top, then at least you won't feel as rotten. But hear me out, beloved. That's why I want you to let this rule your heart. The peace of God. Now, what if this What if this is actually reality? And by the way, I absolutely wholeheartedly believe it is. This isn't just a joke. This isn't God's joke book. This is God's reality. And he looks and he says, really, this is what I want for you now as I'm beautifying you so the world can look and see hints of this masterpiece that I'm making you to be. I want you to allow my peace to rule your heart. The fact that I am completely united with Christ though I was once his enemy. By the way, it's interesting because according to scripture, Jesus is our peace. That's what Ephesians says. He's made the two one. Even the Jew and the Gentile, having torn down the middle wall of separation, which, by the way, in the temple was the wall for which a Gentile couldn't get past or he would be killed. He says, that wall that separated Jew and Gentile, it's not there anymore. The wall that separated man and woman, rich and poor, educated and non-educated, the old religious to the new religious, all of those things, that's all torn down in Christ. And the cool part is when Jesus is the main thing, we just don't have divisions. We don't put each other into categories. It isn't like, are you a this, are you that? The bottom line is, do you love Jesus? Because if Jesus is what, he, if what he's making us into looks like him, then I'm going to be looking to see more Jesus in you. And I'm like, oh, I see something in you. I wish I had more of. I really love to watch that because I see him see my savior in you. And if he's everything in my life, I'll be excited about it. Now, this word for rule, for what it's worth here, and I really do kind of like this. Uh, the word's brabujo. Brabujo, by the way, literally means to umpire. And I do like that. He says, look at, let the peace of God umpire, umpire your heart. Now, I, I don't know how many of you grew up in sports. I did grow up in sports. My dad was a professional athlete. Now, that particular guy will be your best friend when he's calling things against the other side, and he'll be your worst enemy when he's calling things against you. But the problem, and I love that he uses this word, is that you really, no matter how much you argue, you just don't have the final say. I mean, even if you were absolutely convinced that you did not commit a foul, that you did not commit a penalty, in the end of it all, no matter how you blew in the face you scream about it, chances are what you're going to get in it is be more tired while he doesn't change his mind. I've learned this when I coached. I actually got kicked out of one game when I coached basketball because my team is literally getting trampled upon, literally, by the other team. A Christian school, nonetheless. Uh, and they 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 throw down our forward. I was coaching basketball. They they throw down our forward and just kick him in the head. I mean, it was amazing. 
you know. And I'm like, where are you? Where are your eyes? And I, I was, I was not being very nice. But I, but uh, like you know, there are certain places where it's like you know, yes, there's, it's not nice when you say like, so which one of those guys are you related to? How many of them are your daughters? You know that kind of thing. But there's a difference between where you don't trust the empire and somebody that actually has perfect and absolute right to, call, to make every judgment call and it's going to be right. Imagine where every judgment call is going to be. There will be a day when everything will be sort of digitalized, you know, and they won't be able to go, well, let's look and see the instant replay. It'll just be like, bleep, bleep, you know, and, you know like, like a red card will fly out of the, the ground or something, you know, and, you know, and you're like, what? And it's like, I saw that, you know. And they're like, and here's the 16 different camera angles of that particular infraction, you know. <laughs> well, understand, the idea of this is in our heart, there is a battle going on. There's a game being played. We're trying to score yards. The, earth, the world is trying to score yards back on us. And here we are trying to gain yardage. We're trying to move and trying to move forward with all of this. And all of that, we could try to play outside of the rules. We could try to cheat and steal. We could actually try to compromise and all of that. But in it, God says, look, this is what I want to umpire everything. I would like my peace to umpire everything. In the end of it all, the fact that you're with me, son, the fact that you're with me, child, should make every call. And I realize if that umpired my, my heart like it should, a lot of decisions would become very easy. All of a sudden, I'm looking going, well, do I go and do this thing or do I go and do that thing? And Jesus is like, let's make the decision based on the fact that you and I are united, that we have peace with each other. And I'm like, ooh, with that in mind, that looks like a much brighter choice than that one does. This one may look like a lot of fun, per se, sold to me by the world, but this is the one where I could have a lot more fun with you, Jesus. You know, there's certain places where you can go and, and have fun, so to speak, but there are other places, but you couldn't necessarily bring some of your friends or your wife or whatever, you just wouldn't do that? One of the reasons is you just know it's, this isn't the place for her. This isn't the place for him. I remember there was a couple that invited us to this movie way back when, and they just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. And I mean, and they were just, they, they were torn up by it. And then they brought us into it and invited us in it. We lasted five minutes in the movie. And I mean, and it was so sexual and insulting to women, to the Lord and all that. And I could see them even go, wow, I can't believe we really thought this was funny, the two of us. But obviously, now that my pastor's here, it's just not so funny with him. And, you know, and they stayed. <laughs> we went and said, well, that was, let's go and take a mental bath somewhere, <laughs> you know. And, and, I, and I, we can look back and laugh at those moments. But it's like with the Lord, it's like, you know what? Is this an environment that I'm really happy to be with you, Jesus? Because I'm not leaving him in the car. The Bible even says, would you want to unite Christ with a prostitute? And the whole idea of that is simple. If you want to go and do something really dumb like that, you're still going to be bringing Jesus with whether you like it or not. But if the peace of Christ ruled your heart, what would that do for you? Now, I'd like you to consider where we're at with this. Hey, let's go to the scene. You're a new person in Christ. You've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus didn't just die. He rose again to offer you brand new life. And in receiving brand new life, he makes you this beautiful new masterpiece. Carves off these old remnants of the flesh. Takes off your old wardrobe. Gives you this brand new wardrobe. And he says, now, with all of that, now that you're looking good, now that you've got these new duds, Colossians 3.15, he says, now let the peace of Christ. And now this comes from us. Sorry. Uh, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And he says, look, if the peace of Christ is going to rule in your heart, something brand new is going to happen. And that is that you're going to find yourself being thankful. Now, let me ask you, when was the last time you saw anybody on the streets in any way appearing remotely thankful? When was the last time you saw something advertised where it appeared as if everybody was remotely thankful? You realize we're going to live in a culture where every, I mean, the, the advertising agency cannot have you thankful because if the advertising agency has you thankful, then you'll be content. And if you're content, you won't buy their thing. Now, the book of Proverbs says this. It says, even the bitterest thing is sweet to the starving soul, but the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. Now, the idea of it is if you're starving, you'll eat your shoe. 
If you're starving, you'll eat whatever's in front of you. You'll eat tofu, even, or drink coffee. Sorry. Some preferences here. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, shoe. And then tofu, yeah. Um, but the idea is this. That a person that's that famished will jump into that. A person that's that lonely will jump into a horrible relationship. A person that, that's empty, that is that empty will run into the bar scene and actually think it's a good thing. And Jesus says, look, I've not come to give you life. I've come to give you life abundant. But the satisfied soul lows the honeycomb. Have you ever actually been so full you couldn't eat your favorite dessert? Now, there is a place in Islington that's called the Brazilian Barbecue. I do believe, by the way, this is one of the gifts that was existing before the fall, but that's not a doctor. Um, you're welcome to disagree. But here's the whole idea of it, is that basically you sit at the table and they keep showing up with barbecued meat, one after another, and you either say, yeah, or you say no. You know, And, and that's the whole thing. Well, Ruthie, my carnivore, my seven-year-old carnivore, she ate more than I did. I, I really think she ate a whole cow by the time we were done. The most amazing thing is I ate until I couldn't eat anymore. When we were done, she was like, but I'm like, are you full? She's like, absolutely, but there's this one spot by my belly button that can never be full because it's only for dessert. Kid you not. Now, me on the other hand, I was so satisfied, I couldn't possibly eat anything. And what the scripture tells us is, listen, when you are desperate, when you are empty and you are lonely, you will chase after the things of the world and you'll buy those things and you'll chase after those things because, to be honest, you really haven't taken the other. Now, on the other side, he says, look, let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. And the idea of it is if the peace of God rules in your hearts, you will genuinely be thankful. I can even be thankful for a trial because I know that trials come, that my faith, which is more valuable than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor, or praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. Even a trial is a good thing if God does it. And he says, no, I want you to be thankful. But you won't notice he doesn't put it in the opposite order. He says, look, let the peace of Christ of God rule your hearts and then be thankful. Now that I've trimmed off all that spiritual flab, now that I've carved off the 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 you know the wardrobe of this world and given you a no a new wardrobe, one that cares for other people, let my peace rule your heart. Second thing then he says then in verse sixteen, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now hear me out. There is no place in the body of Christ for a person that just simply says, oh, I'm not going to hell. That's good enough. There's no interest in you simply, in being your get out of hell free card. And that becomes the problem with a lot of apathetic, quote unquote, Christianity. I mean, you read the book of James and you feel like you got taken to the woodshed. James would actually want you doubting even your salvation. Now, I'm not telling you that's my position, but I'm telling you if it's God's position, I have to agree with it. And here's the whole idea. He says, look, it, you want to say that your faith has no activity associated with it, no change, no manifestations, no difference in your life? He says, you show me your faith by nothing, then, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now, James is not saying, I want a faith with works. He's saying, I, like, I want a faith and add works to it for you to be saved. He says, if you're going to get saved, you need a faith that works. Faith that does something, it changes you. And if you said yes, then, to the great creator of the universe, well, then he's going to change you. He's going to change your world in a way. Your priorities, your life, your outcome, your goals, everything is going to start changing because you've surrendered yourself to the one who gives you life. You're not going to look like a dead person anymore. And how sad is it if you were completely unmotivated, completely unanimated, you weren't breathing, your heart wasn't working, and we took the defibrillator and went, clear, and all of a sudden your heart started to beat, your brain started to, to function, your eyes opened up, you started to breathe, and you were like, but I'm going to just completely lay here and do nothing. Oh my God, and I didn't resuscitate you so you could do nothing. And Jesus is like, I haven't resuscitated you so you could be nothing. But if my peace doesn't rule your heart, you'll never be thankful and you'll chase after things because your soul will starve because you won't come to my table to be full. But I want my word now. I want my word to live in you, to dwell in you. Literally, the word means to occupy or inhabit. The word is worthless of birth. And if that be the case, then all of a sudden you start to realize the moment you said yes to Jesus, you went from a sinner to saved. And the moment that you got saved in Jesus Christ, 
Jesus says, no, I would like to make you my disciple. And that means you become his student. And as you become a student of Christ, as he carves off all that worldly flab, then the next thing that happens is God says, look, I want to make you a student so you can become a servant. Not of yourself, but of others. Because the moment you totally understand that I'm going to take care of you, you can actually start reaching out to others because I'm the one providing for you. So it's sinner to saved to student to servant. Now, there are a lot of people like, I'm just saved. I'm just glad I'm not going to hell. And I, I don't care about being like getting any glory or anything. I just want to sit on the grass. I just don't want to burn in the flames. I just want to get in the, I just want to look at Peter and say, how you doing? My name's on the list. Check. It's in small print, but I'm there. And I'm going to go sit on the other side. And go, That's all right. I'm just going to sit here and go, I'm right. Glad I didn't go to hell. It's like somehow there's like an Ikea or like something just a moment above purgatory sitting in heaven. And that's like all you get. But look, I'm not interested in that. God did not create for us to be mundane and mediocre. There was nothing God does mediocre. And now you're his art project. What part of you is going to be mediocre if you're going to glorify God? God looks at you and goes, you know, wouldn't it just be great if I made you ordinary? Wouldn't it be just great if I just made you slightly different than normal? If I made you and people look at you and go, oh, they're okay. Look, Jesus says, either they're going to be uh, they're gonna be wowed by the glory I manifest in you, or they're going to hate you, or both. Get over it. And let me be, let me make you the thing I intend to make you. But if how, how do we become these students? How do I become this disciple? And all that word, mathitikos, means a student. How do I become God's student? He says, this is where it starts. Let my word dwell in you. Let it inhabit you. Well, how does the word inhabit you? It knocks at the door and you let it in. Isn't that how you let anything live with you? In other words, you've got someone calling you on the phone and going, hey, I don't really have a place to stay. I was really hoping I can stay with you. And then the choice is yours. It's asking your permission. And you're like, and the word calls you up. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, hello. Hi, I'm the word of God and uh, the word of Christ. And I was really hoping I could live in you. And you're like, hmm, let me check and see if there's any room. Well, there didn't used to be room, but God just removed all my fornication and my uncleanness and my being driven by my emotions and my covetousness. Wow, that took up a lot of room. And, 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 and wow, and, and there was like idolatry that was in me, and, and now it's not in me anymore. And Wow, I think there's room. Yeah, go ahead. And God says, okay, cool. And then he goes, and he throws this book at you, and you're like, that's intimidating. That's a really big book. You can imagine if God says, now that you love me, let me give you the Encyclopedia Britannica. Get to it. And you're like, oh, I thought that love wasn't work. And this is, God says, well, what part of you thinks love isn't work? But wait, wait a minute here. He goes, look at, here's the problem. You're either going to make me up or I'm going to reveal you for who I really am. And this book's going to make that clear. Now it's up to you. Would you like to become my student or not? And you're like, well, how about if I just sort of it's barely get into heaven and make you. And it's amazing how people are like, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 60 years. Well, tell me about Jesus. Well, I kind of feel like he's this way. He's kind of kind of old like the Pope, but he doesn't look like he doesn't wear that hat. But he kind of, you know, has, he raises his hand. I'm like, where are you getting all your doctrine from? Well, you know, I just kind of looked around and I tried to take the best things I could find in the world and try to make that into a guy. You realize that's what people do. And all of a sudden you're like, well, in other words, what Jesus becomes is just like the nicest guy you ever met. He's not going to bail on me like my dad did, or he's, he's not going to kind of lie to me like that guy did, or he's not going to try to sell me something like that person. He's not going to demand anything of me because nice people don't demand anything of me. And, you know, and, and really, in the end of it all, all he really is is kind of a dumb butler that sort of sits around and I ring a bell when I want something, and he shows up and says, yes, how can I serve you now? I was not the nicest guy I could come up with? And he goes, oh, wait a minute. How about if I actually explain, I'm the Lord. I'm in charge of the entire universe. And then I made you that should be a speck on, the, on, on, on an animal and an innocent. And I lavish you with all of my love. I can't take my thoughts off of you, my eyes off of you. And I am boasting of your name in heaven. But part of you thinks that you should be calling the shots here. I'm the master, not your master card. What are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm just going to make up this God. And he goes, look, it, I want my word to dwell in you richly. And if my word dwells in you richly, all kinds of things are going to change. I can tell you, I responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was 19 years old. And for the next three years, I lived just like I did before, except I would have told you I was going to heaven instead of hell. But I lived like I was going to hell. 
And I'd wonder why I'd wind up in the same position. But I'm like, wow, I think he's Christian now. But how did I end up in this or end up in that? And then I remember, I, I wound up moving from Chicago to Colorado, and I'm laying in this flat, this 700-square-foot flat, with about 11 other people that were working in the same industry as me. And I'm laying in the middle of the night, and I'm staring up at the ceiling, feeling like a roach. I'm crying, and I go, God, how do I want to know who you are? I know this saves me. But if you're willing to reveal yourself to me, I would never go to hell for you. Never. And I took him seriously. And God said, go to California. Now, this was before Baywatch and the glamification. And California was just another state. But it's an easy state to find because if you go west in, in, in the United States and you hit a big body of water, it's a pretty good possibility you've made it to California. So I just drove west until I couldn't anymore, wound up in Costa Mesa. Now, I had gone to church for those three, four years with, uh, without fail. Matter of fact, at least Sunday and then even then some. I mean, it wasn't like I, w I mean, I was on all kinds of worship teams and people were like, oh, you play music? Boom, come and join us. Oh, you've got a little bit of talent. I mean, I've been studying music. I had degrees in it. It wasn't like I didn't know what I was doing. But they had no idea what my walk was. But I was on a first-name basis with all these pastors. And I literally went to the model church. I mean, literally. Where all the, this is where all the models went, including the pastor. He had the hair that if it was a cyclone, that hair would not move, you know? <laughs> you know? And he had the skin that was like permanently like the perfect tan. I don't even know how. He must have had it like injected in him or whatever. It was, but you know those kind of people you look at and you just go, that is ain't your skin color, <laughs> you know? I don't know if you rub like vegetable dye on you, but that's clearly not, you know? But he, but he, was, he was looking good, I'm telling you. But I, but I never, I was on a first name basis with every pastor. I had never seen the Bible open ever, ever once. Never seen it open. At the pastor's house, during the service. And I got to California wanting to find the Lord and did what any reasonable Christian, I got a job right away. Bartended. I mean, no, I don't recommend that. I don't tell you that's a good thing, but it was, it was, that just shows you where I was. And somebody came up and said, hey, that book, you carry? Because I did carry it. I mean, everyone, if you're a Christian, you got to carry a Bible. <laughs> it's part of your accessories. <laughs> you know, right up there with the bumper sticker they hand you when you get saved, you know, and and a T-shirt and an amulet. Well, with all of that, someone says, why, why, why don't you open up that book? And I don't know, it just sounds really strange. Why don't you read it? And it's a book, you know. I don't know, well, it's, a big, it's a big book. And you're like, well, how big is your God? <laughs> You really think that a God that big is going to make a little book for him? Anyway, you think you're going to discover a big God with a pamphlet? You know, <laughs> hi, I'm magnificent and awe-striking. Here's my little thing. It's five bullet points. That'll be good enough for you. And everything else works its way out. I mean, you guys, are like, look at, I'm huge. I'm magnificent. There's no end to me, but I'm going to limit at least enough to give you enough to to make your brain ooze out of your ears if you start. And I open up this book, and something strange happened. My walk became a dance. I mean, literally, it became a dance. And words became a song, and, and, I, and I fell in love. I fell in love with the God who fell in love with me. I mean, I did. And you know when, when somebody gets married, and then they, you get somebody that's like old and cranky, they've been married for 5, 10, 15 years, and they go, oh, honey, don't expect that five years. And you want to hit them. You're like, oh, dude, what are you thinking, you know? This could be, and I realized, look at that was, that, that was, that was over 20 years ago. And I, I've never, I never stopped loving him. I, it's never cooled. It's never gone out. His love, his passion's gone. It's never any of that. Because truth be told, there's no end to him. And the cool thing about God is there's no part where you're going to open up a closet and go, oh, now I see where your kryptonite is. There's no, the only weakness God has is his love for us. And he says, look at, I want my word to dwell in you. And look at, as, as your pastor, even if it's just for the moment, I want you to fall in God like I, fall in God. Well, yeah, in him, but fall in love with God like I have. I want you to catch that because truth be told, it starts to make sense now why he calls it abundant life. And why the things of the world aren't as fun as they used to be. Aren't as amazing as they used to be. I don't even have an appetite for them because my faith is so much better. 
So they better wrap this up or we're going to be here all day, which wouldn't bother me. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think he's speaking or teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Wait a minute, that sounds like another place in Scripture. Actually, in the book of Ephesians, I'm going to have you turn there for just a quick second. If you're actually in the book of Colossians, it's two books to your left. So that's the good news. If you're in Colossians, go to the left. It'll be Philippians and then Ephesians. And go to Ephesians 5. If you have those bookmarks, it'll actually help you because it'll actually show you the books of the Bible in order. In Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 17, it says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, look at, understand, by the way, the word will doesn't mean God's secret plan. The word phileho comes from the root word phile, which just means pleasure. We think of God's will as God, do I wear the red shirt or the green shirt? Do I wear the blue scarf or the orange scarf? God, do I go and do I stop at the burger place or the chips place today? Or do I go and get Indian? And I know if I go to the wrong place, I'm going to get hit by a bus. Or I'm going to spill something on my clothes. Or a baby's going to barf on me on the bus. I mean, it's, you know. And, and God's like, how about, listen, what if you were just governed by what pleases me? And God's like, don't be unwise, but let me tell you what really pleases you, Dale. Don't be or for that matter, anything. It's dissipation. And dissipation means it just everything scatters in opposite directions. And that's what happens, by the way, when you live an intoxicated life, whatever intoxicates you. That could be relationships. That could be whatever. But if you find something that's going to intoxicate you, it, your whole life is going to seem like it's going in opposite directions. Says, but let me tell you the opposite. Be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and with a melody in your heart to God, to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another in fear of God. So you know what? This is what I want. I want to fill you with my spirit and have my word dwell in you richly. And there's a beautiful balance in that. If God is going to cut off the flab and now he's giving you these new clothes, you don't want to be dressed up with nowhere to go. There's something else you're going to need. And that is, interesting, in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, you'll see put off the old man, put on the new, just like this. And then you'll see what I'm saying is like, look at now that you're all dressed up and you're ready, you've taken your shower, you've done, because now, well, what's left? You've got to eat something. You're going to need some energy if you're going to go and do something. And God says, here's my energy, my Holy Spirit. Let my Holy Spirit dwell in you. But not just dwell in you, let my Holy Spirit Fill you. And literally the term in the, in the verb tense is continually be being filled. There is never a moment where you can't get filled with the Holy Spirit. And all you need to do is ask. Jesus says, if you ask your father on earth for bread, will he give you a stone? If you have an egg, will he give you a scorpion? If your earthly fathers know how to give you good gifts, even though they're evil, how much more will your heavenly father give you his Holy Spirit if you ask him? And we read that he doesn't give us Holy Spirit by measure. In other words, he doesn't go, I'm going to give you a little bit. But that guy's a pastor. I'm going to give him a lot. He's like, look at if you ask him, he will flood you with his Holy Spirit. But his Holy Spirit's not there to make you kind of just like, oh, I'm super, you know, I'm just a wizard, but a saved one. The idea is, look at I want to give you the power to live a godly life, a life that looks like heaven, a life that looks glorious. And this is the, and listen, hear this balance. If you take the word of God, and this is what I've heard said, if you take the word of God without the spirit of God, you dry up. If you take the Holy Spirit without the word of God, you blow up. But if you take the word of God and the spirit of God, you grow up. That's the idea here. Now, back in Colossians, it says, let the word of Christ now dwell in you richly. The word richly, by the way, literally means abundantly. Like, let that be your wealth. You walk in the house and go, that guy's obviously rich. Look at the symptoms of that. Man, have you ever met somebody rich in the word of God? You just know when you ask them something, it's not going to go, well, my opinion is, the word of God's going to come out of them. He says, that's what I want for every one of you. Not just the pastor. I want every believer. So then when someone says, who is Jesus? What is really this? How does it? And you could say, well, let me tell you, this is what the Bible says about it. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. And then he says, what becomes the result of that? You teach and admonish, which means to warn gently. Others in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. 
listen, when was the last time you were just brought to song? You know, when I see somebody and they're brought to song, I tend to think that person's in love. You know, when you fall in love with someone and everything kind of becomes a song and you don't even care about what's going on around you, I don't really care. It's like you like became a musical and people are like, that guy's kind of dorky. And you're like, I could care less. And I tell you, the girl, she likes, I'm good. Things are good. You know, everything's kind of, you know. It's like, well, what happens when you fall in the Lord? And listen, as a musician my entire life, I laid down everything and said, well, good, I'm never going to pick up any of this again. I don't, want, I don't want this to be what I'm known for. And for six months, I didn't even sing. Lord. I mean, I'm the kind of person I hear rhythms in traffic, you know? I mean, I listen to the well, that's a cool melody. I mean, I'm, I'm weird that way. But it came down to this point where I just started falling in the Lord, falling in love with the Lord because I wanted Him to be my identity. It was in that same time where I started working His Word, and all of a sudden, songs started to come out, and it wasn't like I was trying to make anything happen. It just would come out of me like sweat. And what was so cool about it was is that because your songs are taught and admonished and encouraged and remind people, you to sing grace and mercy but that love comes from you not making me up that love comes from me understanding who I am according to who I am that's what I want and with it we'll pick up with verse 17 next week but I want to pray for every one of us because that bounces into how God says let me show you how that manifests as a husband as a wife as a worker as a boss as a child as a parent I'm going to show you how all of that manifests practically but first, let's put out the prerequisite. Where are you at right now with the peace of Christ? Do you have a unity with Christ? Or are there things you're stuck in between you and him? Because that's the whole idea of letting the peace of God rule your heart or untie your heart. Is the world battling over stuff? How many times do you have to get ripped off by the world before you stop trying to cash in its bank? And you know, you keep investing your life, your heart into things and it breaks your heart and you're kind of going, man... And you keep going back to the same place to get beat up. It's like how many times before you realize the Lord's going, you know, I'll wait, but I'm looking for permission to lavish you with my love. Well, you can make that choice yourself. How many times are you going to live without that peace? And he died on the cross to pay for it all so he can reconcile you to the Father. He's done all the work except one thing, and that's remove your choice. Are you going to say yes to that God today? Because I want to be absolutely unified with you. I don't want anything between. And then with that, he says, if that's the case, I'll, I'll know it as your pastor. I'll know it because you'll start to become thankful. You'll become thankful with even things that the world would criticize and hate. And then with that, if you have allowed the peace of Christ to umpire your heart, it's going to umpire you into the word of God. And as it umpires you into the word of God, you're going to go, you know what? I'm not going to just not know this book. I'm going to, because I don't want to just know this book. I want to know the Lord already. I don't want to just know the word. I want to know the Lord. He says, well, then you can find me here. And people go, oh, I really wish I could read your mind, God. Says, you can read my mind. I put it in a book. You know, it's that simple. So I said, I want to pray for us. And I want to pray that there would be nothing in between us. And then we'll end with a song, and I'll probably pull the guys up and, and do like this intro thing. Thing, but, and we'll just sing one last song. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you. That your word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and even discerns the intent of the thoughts of our hearts. Lord, I want to thank you that as the snow falls to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands on, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats, so is your word. It never returns empty. It accomplishes what you desire. Your word is 100% effective. Your word is irreversibly powerful and even can cut down to the smallest of issues. And with that, Lord, I just pray right now, first of all, that every one of us, as we deal with the simplest issue, and that's what are we going to do with the cross? What are we going to do with the fact that you've paid the price for reconciling us to you? And Lord God, I pray today that we would genuinely accept your gift to say yes. Lord, that this wouldn't just be a get-out-of-hell-free card, but this would be genuinely you, Lord. So, Lord, I pray right now for that, for every one of us. And, Lord, I pray as well for those, Lord, who have maybe accepted that gift but recognize you're calling us beyond it. You're calling us from saved to student. And, Lord, I, I, I am 
we're so thankful that you give us the privilege of going through your word. But Lord, I pray that, that the diet of every person's word, including my own, wouldn't just be myself. That every day we would feast on it, just the same way that we feast to keep our bodies thriving. So Lord, I pray, and as we grow in your word, that you make us not just students, but servants, that we would allow you to manifest now, Lord, as we are your masterpiece, set on your work table, Lord, to become the most beautiful thing in all creation, your pride and joy, your prize, knowing that there will be a day where the whole of you in glory, even now you give us hints and traces of it. So, Lord, as I pray this simple prayer, Lord, I, I just want to again re renew my vows with you that anyone who wants to do so as well, but also any who may never accepted your gift will, will respond. But also, Lord, that I would invite you to take me beyond that, that I would invite your peace, Lord, to umpire my heart, that I would invite your word to dwell in me richly, that you would turn my life into a song. So, Father God, I openly acknowledge myself as a sinner. And I recognize that my sin makes me guilty before you. And that you as a righteous judge punish all wrong. But I know that you in your infinite love for us, for me, not wanting me to spend eternity apart from you, punished all of my guilt on the cross of your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross for me and rose again. And having done so, you offer me not just absolution and innocence, but you offer me a brand new life, a resurrected life, free from the manacles and encumbrances of this world, free to serve you, to love you, to become your student, free to make other people more important. So I accept the payment that you have made for me on the cross of your son, Jesus. That as a gift, not as my earning, but as your gift, I accept that gift confessing Jesus as my ransom and as my Savior, that as he's resurrected and offers me new life, I confess Jesus as my Lord, giving him the right to be the architect of my reinvention. And I say yes to Jesus, Lord. Make me a saved person. Make me a student. Develop me as your, as your servant, but in doing so, make me your masterpiece. So here I am, Lord, and surrendered to you. Jesus' name, thank you to bring us to this day. Amen. I want to warn you, he takes you seriously. This isn't a fly-by-night prayer. Oh, get ready. Now, why don't we sing one song as praise to the Lord. Why don't we invite up the people to do so? Listen, thank you. Thank you so much for the honor of being your pastor. I don't take that lightly and the privilege of opening up the word with you. All right, last song on the bulletin, I think, since we actually have those to do so. May the Lord give you supernatural knowledge of the song. Take up my cross and count all as loss. Oh, I'm living for you, Jesus, to finish the race, seeking your face. Oh, I'm living for you, Lord.
something so glorious and amazing, Lord, that we find ourselves in wonder at your creation in us, Lord. And in doing so, draw this entire world to the glory and beauty, Lord, of a God who saves people, transforms them, and makes them into something beautiful. We commit this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.